Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. From traveling across the world to close calls on base to shaking hands with President Ronald Reagan, Daryl Smith and Walt Price have seen it all. But these two didn't always see themselves going into the Air Force. Both Daryl and Walt have a wealth of stories. Listen as they share them on the Cedarville Stories podcast. Thank you, Sarah, for the introduction. And hello, everyone. I'm Mark Weinstein. Welcome back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. I trust you enjoyed last week's program with Sean Hess as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Today's program, I believe, will leave you thankful for our military. So I'm talking with two Air Force veterans. Joining me today are Dr. Daryl Smith, Associate Professor of Management at Cedarville University, and Walt Price. Walt is the lead engineer for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency's 500 million hypersonic demonstration programs, which received the Career Achievement in Government Award in Washington, D.C. back in 2019. During Daryl's 24-year military career, he recorded more than 2,000 flying hours, many alongside Walt Price, and two tours on the faculty at the United States Air Force Academy. Walt is a graduate of North Carolina State University, but he and his wife, Adora, have sent five children to Cedarville University. And now it's my pleasure to welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast, for the first time, Walt Price, and for the second time, Daryl Smith. Welcome to the program, guys. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's good to be here, Mark. Thanks. It's good to be in your presence. Uh, it really is. And after opening today's program with the brief bio of each of you, I know the military keeps much information private, but Walt, can you tell us what this all entails? What is this that you do at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? So, uh, and as in most government jobs, uh, we have DOD civilians managing the contracted effort around the country as we create new weapon systems for the government. So in your various roles at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, is that for national security purposes? Absolutely. Everything we do at Wright-Patterson is for the defense of our great nation, and we are all proud to serve and do that. Well, I'm thankful that you do serve. The, the work of our military needs to be applauded. So as we learned from the introduction, it's obvious that aviation has played a major role in both your lives. Uh, Daryl, how did you first get interested in flying? Was it something you've always wanted to do? It actually wasn't. I wanted to be a baseball player for the Cincinnati Reds. Well, how far in the leagues did you make it? I made it to uh, A ball and not hole. So <laughs> <laughs> finished. That's eighth right above Little League. <laughs> that is, but, but I, I had a good last season. Uh, <laughs> That's good. No, I, you know, I had a rather circuitous route to, to flying. Um, I had two aunts. Uh, one uh, was married and her husband was killed by a drunk driver and left mm -hmm. her a widow at a young age. And another aunt who never married. And so what they did is they took the nieces and nephews, they sort of adopted them as their children. So one thing they did is when we turned 13 years old, they would take us out west, as they would call it. We lived in the Cincinnati area. They'd take us out west to Denver and then to Cheyenne, Wyoming for a rodeo in the summer when we turned 13. So they took me out to Denver, and one day they said, we're going to go down to Colorado Springs and see the Air Force Academy. So I'm like, okay. So we drove down there. Uh, we looked around. I remember quite a thrill. We were, there was a planetarium there. I went to a planetarium show. And when I came out, I was wearing a Cincinnati red shirt, and that was back during the time of the big red machine. And these three girls, they were 15, 16 years old, very cute. 
And they ran up to me and said, oh, are you a Cincinnati Reds fan? And I said, yes. And they said, can we have our picture with you? Oh, my. <laughs> so as a 13-year-old boy, I'm like, I'm living my dream here, right? So uh, so they got a picture. I remember we walked around. We saw the, the uh, Air Force Academy Chapel, which yeah. is the second biggest tourist attraction in the state of Colorado. Okay. So we walked around the Academy for the day and enjoyed it. And really, I didn't think much about it then, uh, other than thinking back and looking at that picture of me and the three girls, right? Uh, so fast forward four years later, I'm living in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, my dad was a civil servant. He worked for the Army Corps of Engineers. So he took a job up there. And uh, he came home from work one day near the end of my junior year of high school. And he said, Daryl, Colonel Robinson said, if you want to go to a service academy, you better start applying. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he said, if you want to go to a service academy, you better start applying. And, and I wasn't being flippant or rebellious or rude or anything. But I was, I was like, Dad, I don't know what you mean. He said, you know, like West Point, Annapolis, the Air Force Academy. And I was like, oh, and literally, Mark, this is the thought that went through my head. The Air Force Academy was pretty and flying airplanes would be fun. Maybe I'll write them a letter. And so that's what started my journey. Uh, I, like I said, I was into my junior year of high school. I wrote them a letter and one thing led to the next. And next thing you know, June 23rd, 1980, I'm standing at the uh, base of the ramp at the Air Force Academy. That's a fascinating story. So your dad actually planted a seed uh, that actually germinated into your career. Yeah, and I, I really, I, I want to give credit to my Aunt Liz and my Aunt Barb. Had they not taken me to the Air Force Academy when I was 13, who knows what would have happened. And really, the only other interaction I had had with airplanes is my dad's office in Anchorage, for those who've been there, was on Elmendorf Air Force Base, and there was a lot of planes there. And I remember we drive by the runway sometimes and I would see them cleaning the planes and I thought they yeah. looked cool. Yeah. But yeah, it really, it was not a lifelong dream of mine. And uh, that's how it came about. So well, where did your flying interest uh, come? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm considerably older than most of you guys. So I grew up in the sixties major, you know, grade school age, you know, the Apollo program was the big thing going on. And I wanted to be an astronaut no matter how I got there. That's what I wanted to do. So um, I didn't realize you had to be smart to do that. I just figured I could just draw pictures of the Apollo uh, command uh, <laughs> capsule and the lunar lander, and I'd be in there, right? So instead of paying attention in class, I spent all my time drawing pictures of what was going on in, in national media, and I was just a big fan of you know, astronauts and flying in space and all that good stuff. So it uh, really wasn't until I got to college I realized that, yeah, uh, probably should have some academic background in yeah. order to do this. And yeah. uh, by then it was too late. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, Daryl started in 1980, roughly his journey through the Air Force career. What year did you start? So I uh, entered the Air Force ROTC program. Um, the I think it was uh, the fall of 1974. Okay. Uh, 75. Yeah. So um, as a result of that, I did the four-year ROTC program. I uh, came out with a, a navigator uh, slot, and I went out to Mather Air Force Base to train as a navigator. Okay. So I'm interested. So we've already made it clear that Walt's a lot older than us. But So how did you guys meet? Yeah, so um, we both were 135 crew members, and here at Wright-Patterson, we had a test wing that was mostly of 135 platforms. 
What's 135? Uh, K, uh, C135, Got EC135. Okay. So the base platform that we both started in was a KC135, which is the tanker air refueler. And so that unit drew on crew members from, I'll call it the tanker community. Mm-hmm. Um, I showed up there in 1986. Daryl, I'm not sure when you showed up, but... Uh, so I came in 1990. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And when I showed up, they... Generally, it was a, the test wing was very cool. It was in then what we called Area C, over by the fly line. And uh, when a new person came in, we were working on several programs, and they would ask us what program we wanted to work on. And initially, I said I wanted to work on the T3 program, or what would become the T3, which was a new trainer for our uh, people getting introduced to flight. But within days of that, somehow, I don't know, I think my former roommate was in that unit and he told Walt about me or whatever. So Walt requested that I work in the program that he was working on. So then I got moved over to what was called the Argus program or the Araya program. And uh, that's how I first met him is I got assigned to the program that he was running. And he, in essence, was my boss there at Wright-Patterson. So that was summer of 1990 for me. What kind of missions did you guys work on together? Well, I'll, I'll start with the platform. I mean, the platform was designed by, back then, it was called uh, uh, Star Wars, Ronald yes. Reagan's big Star Wars program. I've Real name was the Strategic Defensive <laughs> Initiative, but the press called it Star Wars. Yeah. yeah, And so we had a platform that was designed to collect data for the country. It had cameras on board, and we went all over the world collecting data to make sure we understood the phenomenon associated with um, things we needed to protect ourselves against. Mm. So one of the hallmarks, I think, was, uh, and Walt was in charge of this, and I, I got to give him kudos for this. Uh, the Araya was a, an airplane we were modifying, and essentially we cut a gigantic hole in the side of the plane where the cargo door went and put essentially a big plate glass window there, right? And what Ronald Reagan was proposing, he said, look, our basic defense against the Soviet Union is if they shoot missiles at us, we say we're going to shoot missiles at them and vice versa. And they're like, we have to have a better defense than that. So what he proposed is could we put something like lasers on satellites mm-hmm. that if the Soviet Union launched an intercontinental ballistic missile, an ICBM, to the United States, when it went up into, the, into space, which would have to travel to get to the U.S., could a, could a satellite shoot a laser and shoot down that missile in space? That was the general wow. idea. Yeah. Okay. So we got tasked with identifying what happens to lasers at high altitudes. So Walt got put in charge of kind of overseeing the modification of this plane in the area. We called it the Mod Center at Wright Path. Had uh, guys that were very sharp over there. And we cut this big hole in the window and put a window in, like I said, and put a gigantic laser inside the airplane. Okay. And <laughs> then we went up over, we wanted to find some place in the country that wasn't that populated. So we picked sure. Montana. Okay. And we went up uh, to the Northwest and we took off out of a base up there. And essentially we flew along at a very high altitude over Montana and we shot this laser out the window. And there was another plane 100 kilometers off our wing, and they were collecting the signature of the laser because we wanted to see what happens to a laser at high altitude. And uh, 
with some very smart people in the back end. What happens to it? Well, the first thing you make sure you have scientists from Lawrence Livermore Laboratories with you so they can tell you because we were simply the bus drivers, right? At that point, yeah. At that point. I mean, the bottom line for your audience is that light wiggles when it goes through the atmosphere and you, you need to be able to characterize that in a way that's meaningful. And I can tell you it's very cold when you fly at high altitudes in January. Very cold. I've never been in a – I've been in uh, an Air Force refueling plane so that's kind of you've flown. That's out. how we started, yeah. yeah. So aren't there heaters in the cockpit for you guys? There are, but just like if in your house, if it gets forty below, and you've got a furnace, but your house is going to be a little colder than okay. normal. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So we were we were getting like little uh, stuff those hunters use they put in their gloves yeah. and boots. Yeah, <laughs> I was buying those, putting them in my boots. How, how long were you flying at, at that altitude? How how long of a mission was that? I want to say we took off around 2,200 hours, which is 10 o'clock. And uh, I think we landed around 3 a.m., 4 a.m. So it was the middle of the night, and it was January. So wow. it was cold. It, yeah, it was cold. It's cold and dark. That's a sort of tough combination. So I want to get back and to learn from both of you guys what was the best part of flying together. But before I go there, um, I know from being in your office, uh, Daryl, that you had the opportunity to meet President Ronald Reagan. You both mentioned Ronald Reagan just moments ago. Can you share with us this encounter that you had with the former president? This is a this is a good story. I graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1984, right? So just for perspective, they had not had a sitting president come to graduation since 1969. So Richard Nixon had come in 69. So here we are 15 years later, never had a president. And we really wanted Ronald Reagan to come. So we had invited him to be our speaker, and his office said he'll try. Well, uh, some again, some of your seasoned listeners will remember a senator from Arizona named Barry Goldwater. Sure. So Barry Goldwater was the head of what we call our board of visitors, and he came out our senior year, and he was talking to our class president, and he said, you know, how's it going? And he said, pretty good. And he goes, any problems? He said, well, we're trying to get Ronald Reagan to come for our graduation. He said, well, what'd he say? And he goes, well, he was noncommittal. He said, he'll try. So Goldwater says, can I use your phone? <laughs> so, right then. Right then, yeah. And so those are bays of the landline. Goldwater dials on a rotary dial, oh. dials the White House. <laughs> I just barely got a lawyer to like talk to President Reagan. What? <laughs> Hangs up. He goes, ah. He's out at the Western White House, you know, out in, uh, off San, San Bernardino there. Uh, okay. Rancho del Cielo. So he calls out there. He calls the ranch. As Barry Goldwater, like tough president. What? Hangs up. He goes, he's at the riding stables. <laughs> he calls that number. Right? Right. As Barry Goldwater, like to speak with President Reagan. You know, President Reagan gets on and, uh, yes, sir. Yeah, I'm out at the Air Force Academy and uh, they'd love to have you come out for graduation. Okay. Uh-huh. 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 All right. Well, thank you, Mr. President. Have a good day. Hangs up. He, he looks at our class president. He goes, He'll do everything he can to be there. And so sure enough, Ronald Reagan came to our graduation. Uh, immensely popular president. Absolutely. Right? And uh, in my opinion, a very great president. We graduate by squadrons at the Air Force Academy. So I'm in 40th squadron, which is the last squadron. So I'm going to get my diploma last. And Ronald Reagan had uh, said he wanted to shake every graduate's hand. 
So he stood there. It was like a 90-degree day, really hot, not a cloud in the sky. He shook every single graduate's hand. Well, I was fifth from the end. So I call my name. I come across, and I think he was getting worn down, right? So he's looking the opposite direction from where I'm coming. He's just kind of staring. And I walk up to him, and I said, excuse me, Mr. President. He goes, oh, okay. he goes, congratulations. And I just said, hey, I just want to tell you that Myself and there are several other guys here. We pray for you every single day. Mm. And he said, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Then he grabs my elbow. He's shaking my hand already. He goes, what was your name again? And I said, Daryl Smith. And he goes, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And I was like, well, I guess I better be moving on. And he goes, oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> right. And uh, it was funny because after the ceremony, I went up in the stands, parents and everything, and people were like, what were you doing down there? <laughs> I said, Have well, a conversation with the I president. I said, I probably only get to meet a president one time, so I thought I'd make the most of it. But yeah, You sure did. Uh, it was a very memorable day. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a great uh, photo montage in your office. And uh, So back to uh, your flying days, uh, what was the best part of flying um, together, uh, Walt? Because I think by that time we were both going to the same church, so we we knew Patterson Park. Yeah, Patterson Park. We knew where we all stood with the Lord, and it's just I get why we are in the jobs we're in, but sometimes it's really good to be with like-minded people sure. when you're out flying a mission. It's just encouraging thing to do, and uh, to me that was the best part is that I can relax. I know this guy. I know he loves the Lord, and. Uh, we're going to just have a good time together and we don't have to be crazy when we're done flying halfway around the world somewhere. Yeah. You know? What would you say um, were some of the scariest missions that you flew together? With the two of us? Yeah. Because at Blytheville, you, you had that incident. Before, yeah, where, right? I, where I had to land with the nose gear up. Mm -hmm. What was that about? Um, so <laughs> in the military, you have um, evaluating crews and training crews and at some point during the course of the year you all have to evaluate each other and so we had our two evaluating crews and our training crew on the same flight we were we call them check rides okay six hour flight everybody gets their landings in everybody gets their nav legs in and we were on the downwind for a full stop put the gear handle down nothing and so um we worked on that for about 10 minutes. We were already bingo fuel, which means we had no gas left. And so it... <laughs> In a refueling tanker, that's a little that, ironic. That, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's a big deal. So we happened to have an aircraft in the pattern with us. We called it ACDC. It was an EC-135, so he could give gas and take it. So he pulled up behind us with about 3,000 feet above the ground and started reverse air refueling us. So on that flight, we did uh, about 19 air refuelings and um, took on about 90,000 pounds. Started to get dark. And we said, you know, better to do this in the daylight than dark. So we got to land without a nose gear. Let me just say, as a pilot, it's like not high on your list of things to do, right? It has to be highly dangerous. Yeah, because you got two, you got two landing gear on the wings, right? And that you initially touch down on, then you ease it down and you drop right. down on your right. nose. Well, you, you're going to be dropping down and down and down until the metal hits the runway, right? right. And as we know, the laws God has put in, into motion of friction and things like that, you're going to get sparks and things like that. Right. And you got a bunch of gas on the on the 
on the tanker, it's not, yeah. Well, we didn't have a bunch of gas. You, well, we you we, we, yeah, dumped, we dumped it all in the farmer's field right before we touched down. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a common procedure, right? If, if you have a potential difficult landing to drop your fuel. Yeah, as much as you can, yeah. Yeah. And the gas will evaporate before it comes down. Generally. Generally. So um, in this particular case, um, or this procedure for landing without a nose gear, was, it had a history of being about 50% successful. Um, mm-hmm. The pilot who did the landing was uh, very experienced. He actually had to do it in Vietnam as a first lieutenant. Really? So, so this was his second time having to do this in his career. Yeah. And, I think I'd uh, stop flying with that guy. <laughs> no, I'd stay with him. He's, he's, <laughs> he has great, uh, great numbers there. Yeah. But, so it, it, was, it was pretty scary. Somebody decided to invite all the wives out to watch this landing. And so oh. at, at that time, <laughs> what a yo-yo. The, <laughs> the airplane had a, like a rubber-based paint job. It was that, I'll call it light blue, sky blue paint mm. job. Yeah. Well, as soon as the nose will, uh, as soon as the nose hit the concrete, it was just sending up sparks, the height of the tail of the airplane, all the way to the back of the airplane. And this this is what the lovely brides got to see uh, as we were coming to a stop. What every wife wants to see her husband, <laughs> right, with sparks flying around his plane. Yeah. yeah, I don't think so. So Mark, Walt's uh, story had to do with a large career aircraft. Mine actually occurred in a T-37, which is a little two-seat trainer. I was out with another pilot doing some proficiency work where we just practiced landings. We were doing touch and goes at a spot up in the Northwest. And uh, the guy I was with, if you recall, I guess this past summer, the movie Maverick came out. And uh, that, of course, was a follow-on to Top Gun from 1986 with Tom Cruise. And just for your listeners' uh, knowledge, most pilots are not like Tom Cruise, but some of them think they are Maverick. And I happen to be flying with a guy that had a little bit of those tendencies. So we're doing some touch and goes and all of a sudden he goes, Hey, why don't we shoot up this Canyon? It was a Canyon near the runway. I didn't really want to do so. Uh, I just immediately felt uneasy about it, but I did uh, a no, no on the aircraft. I, I deferred to the other pilot. He was a little bit senior to me in rank and in experience. And even though I felt uncomfortable, I didn't say anything. In fact, I talked about this on my Dr. Aviation website, that that's one thing that can lead to aircraft mishaps. So I didn't say anything, and he heads up this canyon. And uh, we are, at some points, pretty low. I'll just leave it at that. And I'm thinking, you know what? There could be some power cables across this canyon. There could be telephone wires, et cetera. And I just felt extremely uneasy. Fortunately, at one point, he finally pulled up and said, okay, let's head back and do some more touch and goes. And then we headed home. But I I look back on that and how fortunate I was that nothing occurred there. You know, usually when there's an aircraft emergency, there's no time to be scared. There's no time to have for emotion. To be honest, you just deal with the problem. But that was one case where I was scared in the aircraft. I actually wasn't flying and I was sitting there as a spectator and Looking back, I should have spoken up. Guys, you guys have both um, touched on the importance of um, having that shared relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you put it into words just really how meaningful it was uh, or opportunities that you took while you're in flight um, to deepen that relationship together? 
two things in flying, three things in flying, just really, I could see God's work. Number one, just because of the nature of the KC-135, we would fly missions day or night all times, right? And I'd love to fly at sunset. And sometimes you saw some spectacular sunsets, yes. especially over the ocean. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. I thought of that several times with these spectacular sunsets. Yeah. Um, I, I think not exactly flying, but we had lots of believers in our unit. So we, we had weekly Bible studies uh, or monthly Bible studies. Uh, uh, Air Force was a little more friendly to doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, honestly, Adora and I, we, we were discipled in the Air Force. There, there's no question about that. that yeah. It was because of um, the men and women that we served with we really came to mature yeah. in our understanding of who Jesus Christ is and how that really applied to our day-to-day -day living. Yeah. Um, yeah. The reason I, I stayed in the Air Force, actually. Really? Mm -hmm. How long were you in the Air Force? 25 years. Okay. If I just get back to number two and number three of, of what I learned in flying, you know, the sunsets, obviously. Number yeah. two was... And Isaac Newton and others recognize this, right? That God governs the universe through certain physical laws is one way he governs the universe. And in flying, we rely on the laws of thermodynamics and aerodynamics. And it's amazing. They work every single time. Mm -hmm. And when you understand the mathematics and the engineering, and the physics behind flight, you look at it and you go, wow, what a designer and creator we have. And it works every time, every time, right? Yeah. And then number three, when you're flying around, it gives you perspective. I remember mm -hmm. I was in Guam for six weeks back in 1987. And I remember when we flew back to the States and we hit the West Coast, I was like, whoa, there's a lot of land there. <laughs> because <laughs> for six weeks I had been over the ocean. Right. And we forget, I think, what is the earth, like 70% water or something, right? Yeah. But you get perspective when you see little houses and it, you're like, wow, we are not as big and as important as we think we are as human beings. Yeah. And flying can really give you that perspective. Mm, that's neat. It's neat, neat observation. So as we uh, near the end of the podcast, I need to I need to navigate this plane back to a landing, hopefully a, a safe landing. And I want to touch on um, your post-military careers. Um, I'll start with Daryl. How was it that you were able to transition so well from a Air Force pilot to a college professor? And not just here at Cedarville, but you were in Cincinnati at a school there as well. So you're assuming I made the transition well. I've we'll seen it. I've seen it. And I've oh. talked to your students and they, they like you. Okay. I think you're a great professor. Thank you. Um, you know, there was, and I think it's still philosophy of the Air Force. If you were a flyer, either a pilot like I was or a navigator like Walt was, there was a kind of a mantra that you were not allowed to fly for 20 years. You needed to be a well-rounded officer and you needed to go do other things other than fly. And a lot of times that meant going to the Pentagon or a headquarters and drawing up plans or writing speeches for generals or carrying a briefcase around. And frankly, none of that appealed to me. And so I went to uh, when I was at Wright Pat, I went to night school at Wright State University and okay. got my master's degree. 
And that allowed me to go to the Air Force Academy for my quote unquote non-flying assignment. Yeah. And when I got there, I just, I really enjoyed teaching and seemed to be doing it pretty well. And so the latter part of my career was a lot of teaching at the Air Force Academy. I had actually, my goal when I retired was to fly for Delta Airlines out of right. Cincinnati, right? Because right. that's where I was from. But it was three years after 9-11. There was still hundreds and hundreds of pilots furloughed for 9-11. They had just changed the mandatory retirement age for pilots. Used to be 60. They changed it to 65. So there was like a five-year period. Nobody's retiring all these guys are furloughed from 9-11. There were no flying jobs when I retired. And so I thought, well, I'm blessed. I enjoyed teaching at the college level. And so that's how I got into higher education as a civilian. So uh, I, I've often heard of this, this phrase, it's an air to compare, because we can always compare ourselves to somebody and make us feel better than what we are. But um, how would you compare um, the Air Force Academy in every aspect, academically and culture, with where you are today at Cedarville. It's funny. I was just talking to somebody about that last week. Um, I'm very blessed to teach at Cedarville in that, right? What is a college professor's dream? That they teach a student that's smart and a student that's motivated. What a great combination. Yeah. I've had starts, smart students that weren't motivated. I've had motivated students that weren't that smart. It's really bad when you don't have somebody that's not that smart and not that motivated, but generally they don't stay around too long. But no, we have at the Air Force Academy and at Cedarville, we have a lot of students that are both smart and motivated. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, my Cedarville students remind me of my cadets at the Air Force Academy. And at least when I was there teaching and as a cadet, uh, I found a greater percentage of Christians in the cadet wing than probably at your normal university. Okay. Uh, so there was a spiritual component at the Air Force Academy as well. Obviously, at Cedarville, it's a much stronger part. But it is, it's a joy to teach here because we have smart, motivated students who love the Lord. Right? Yeah. Not every one of them, but a lot of them. As a parent who has sent five students to Cedarville, mm -hmm. does what Daryl just said resonate with you that you see that same academic rigor and the the motivation. Yeah, I see that two ways, Mark. Um, I see it both from the kids I sent here, um, the fact that they uh, were pushed to be excellent, yeah. and um, you had the spiritual component that focused on them maturing as believers, and also see it as a guy that's on the receiving end of that training yeah. at the base. Uh, many students are are working there now, and are excelling. And I think the spiritual component has a, a huge factor in that, but also the fact that uh, Cedar, Cedarville is very academically rigorous. Yeah. Um, uh, they, their, their students compete extremely well with some of the big name schools around right. the country. Right. So as we, as we wrap up today's program, I want to wrap, I'm going to bring it all together and, just how important, um, or how are you able, even today, to use your Air Force flying experience in the military to share your faith in Jesus? Part of class every day is I have what's called Life 301, and I share a life lesson I learned. Yeah. And a lot they, they can be related to flying and what happened in the Air Force. The other outlet for me, if I can mention it real quickly, is yeah. um, through a friend named Todd who lives in Cincinnati, 
he had me read a book called a hundred dollar startup back in 2014. And from that, I got the idea of starting an online educational website to introduce young people to aviation because aviation has great opportunities, particularly now there's so many openings in the air in uh, piloting air traffic control, airfield operations, so many openings in the next few years. I think it's a great career field for young people. So I came up with this website called dreaviation.com, which introduces students to the world of aviation and teaches them the physics behind it, as well as the history and the important people. So that's been a great joy for me because I get to combine my love of flying, right, with my love of education. I've been very blessed to do two things in my career, both of which I really enjoy, yeah. flying airplanes and teaching at a college. Yeah. Very blessed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I think this is a fairly simple idea or concept. Um, uh, the idea of discipleship, that's what we're called to do as believers, uh, is, right. is kind of key in my mind. And, and flying really, especially learning to fly, drove that home for me as a person. I probably use the example a little bit too much in meetings that I show up in, but the example kind of goes like this. You know, it's great to get in front of a bunch of people and communicate an idea, but it, but is that making a disciple? Maybe not, but they, they get some ideas, but eventually they have to show up in an airplane somewhere. And guess what? That's always done one-on-one. There's the instructor, there's the student. And they fly together. They learn the craft. Yeah. And then the student goes out. And that student uh, now is a pilot and has learned the craft. And the way the Air Force uh, makes more pilots is a one-on-one relationship with mm-hmm. a student until they've achieved the results of being a pilot or a navigator. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes as as a church, we can, or believers, we can get really excited about big numbers and speaking in front of lots of people. Right. But where that real interaction, that real training comes together is when we're one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, um, we this, this plane has now landed, and uh, <laughs> we need to go do other things. But I want to thank you for joining me this week on the Cedarville Stories podcast. It was great to be with you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, it was good. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by today's episode, share it with a friend. Please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And connect with us at Cedarville on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another inspiring Cedarville story for God's glory.